Welcome to another episode of A Load of BS, the behavioural science podcast with me, Daniel Ross. This week, I welcome back psychologist, technologist and businessman Nir Eyal to talk more about habits and distractions, what forms them and how do we overcome the worst of them. This episode is no different from part one for its tempo, energy and richness of content. Today, however, we're zooming in on distractions rather than the subject of habits which took up much of part one. The next 25 minutes is packed with practical and simple tips on how to value and manage your time better. Get rid of those to-do lists, cancel all pointless meetings immediately and drop into the mind of Nir Eyal. Today we're talking about why we get distracted, the internal and external triggers of distraction, the four steps to becoming indistractable, the terror of to-do lists and why we love meetings and how to run them better. And of course, Nir's quick fire round, including his favourite book recommendation. As a clue, it's written by someone I've already interviewed on this pod. These podcasts are my greatest project and they are only worthwhile with your support. You can find my podcasts on all the usual platforms, Apple, Spotify or wherever you might listen. Do subscribe and follow a load of BS and give me a five star review if you enjoyed it. And you can let me know what you think of it all on Twitter at Daniel S.J. Ross. Now prepare to be distracted again. So let's switch gears and talk about distraction. Of the two overlapping subjects that interest you, I suspect distraction is the one that more of us immediately connect with because to greater or lesser degrees, our days are filled up with constant distractions, possible distractions. Distractions are an ongoing distraction. I'm distracted by the plethora of wonderful things that I might do every day. And there are just so many questions to ask on this subject. But firstly, to say that distractions, I think, are often wonderful things. They're beguiling, they're amusing diversion. So should productivity be a primary life goal? So it depends what your definition of distraction is. So I would say that distraction is always bad, right? Distraction is never a good thing. What I think you're alluding to is diversion. Diversion is great, okay? Diversion is just a refocusing of attention. And we pay for the privilege, right? When we go to see a movie, we want to escape reality for a little bit. We want to divert our attention from the real world and getting engrossed in this film. Now, we know that it's just flickering light. Those aren't real people having real life experiences, but we kind of submit to that illusion because it's fun. And that's great. There's lots of diversions of attention meditating, praying, painting, reading, all these things are diversions of attention and they're wonderful. What is bad is distraction. Now, what is distraction? The best way to understand what distraction is, is to understand what distraction is not. So most people, if you ask them, what's the opposite of distraction, they'll tell you the opposite of distraction is focus, right? That makes sense. The opposite of distraction is focus, but that's not exactly right. That if you look at the origin of the word, the opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. That both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull, and they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction, by definition, is any action that pulls you towards what you said you were going to do, things that you do with intent, things that move you closer to your values and help you become the kind of person you want to become. The opposite of traction is distraction. Distraction is any action that pulls you further away from your goals, further away from the things that you plan to do, further away from your values, and further away from becoming the kind of person you want to become. So this isn't just semantics. This is incredibly important because I would argue any action can be traction or distraction based on one word. And that one word is forethought. Look, if you want to play video games, 
if you want to scroll Facebook, if you want to do whatever it is you want to do, that's fine. We should stop moralizing and medicalizing these perfectly fun, great behaviors. There's nothing wrong with this. As long as you do it on your schedule and according to your values, as Dorothy Parker said, the time you plan to waste is not wasted time. That's not a distraction. That's traction if it's what you plan to do. A distraction is when you said you'd do one thing and now you're doing something else. So this is the crusade I'm on right now is to help people understand the difference between traction and distraction. But the only way you can do that is to define for yourself how you want to spend your time. Because remember, you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So if your schedule is full of white space, right, if you had nothing planned, well, then you can't complain that you got distracted because what did you get distracted from? Why do we get distracted? I mean, does it suggest that most of us are in the wrong job or is it just in our makeup? So first of all, distraction is not a new problem. It's certainly not something that started with our technology. Plato, the Greek philosopher, complained about this very same problem 2,500 years ago. So the problem is at least 2,500 years old. He called it akrasia in the Greek, the tendency to do things against our better interests. So people have always been struggling with distraction. So now that we know the difference between traction and distraction, the next question is, why do we take these actions in the first place? Well, here we're back to triggers. We talked about triggers a little bit when I talked about my first book, Hooked. Here they come again. So the first kind of trigger is what we call external triggers right? What we talked about earlier, the pings, the dings, the rings. This is what we tend to blame for our distractions. However, studies find that they account for only 10% of our distractions. Only 10% of the time that you get distracted is because of something in your outside environment. So what's the other 90%? The other 90% of the time that we get distracted, we get distracted not because of what's happening outside of us, but rather because of what's happening inside of us, inside our heads specifically. These are called internal triggers. What are internal triggers? Internal triggers are uncomfortable emotions that we seek to escape. So boredom, loneliness, fatigue, stress, anxiety. This is 90% of the time that we go off track. We are doing so because we are looking to escape an uncomfortable sensation. So procrastination, distraction, they're not character flaws. They're not some kind of moral failing. It's simply that the vast majority of us have never learned how to deal with discomfort in a healthy way that propels us towards traction rather than what most people do, which is try and escape it with distraction. So whether it's too much news, too much food, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook, you are always going to get distracted by one thing or another unless you understand what those internal triggers that you're trying to escape are and you do something about it. Because if you don't master your internal triggers, they will master you. And managing the discomfort is at the center of your four-step methodology, right? How you then use, call it tricks of the mind, techniques to handle and overcome these unwanted thoughts. Maybe you could just sort of walk us through that methodology. So there's four steps to becoming indistractable. The first step is to master the internal triggers. That It is the most important step. And of course, we don't like to think about this, right? Remember earlier, we talked about the proximal cause versus the root cause. The proximal cause is the phone in your hand, right? Or the app that you blame on distraction. But what's the root cause? Of course, the root cause is the reason you're checking that app in the first place. And the reason you're checking that app or, you know, turning on the television or taking that shot of drink or whatever the case might be is because you're looking to escape an uncomfortable emotional state. So the first step has to be to master those internal triggers. The second step is to make time for traction. What we talked about earlier in terms of if you don't plan your day, somebody's going to plan it for you and you can't say that something was a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So this simple technique that many people resist because it requires a little bit of effort is all about planning your time, right? And this has been studied time and time again. I mean, it's literally one of the most studied aspects of time management. It's called setting an implementation intention, which is just a fancy way of saying planning out what you're going to do and when you're going to do it, essentially making a schedule. And it's one of the reasons why to-do lists are horrible. People don't realize this, that running 
putting your life on a to-do list is probably one of the worst things you can do for your personal productivity. I talk about that in the book as well. Instead of measuring yourself based on how many little cute checkboxes you completed, you want to measure yourself by your ability to do what you said you were going to do for as long as you said you would without distraction. That's it. And it turns out that people who do that actually finish more than the to-do list devotees. They actually do check off more boxes simply because they learned how to plan their time and stick to whatever it is they said they were going to do without distraction for as long as they said they would. The third step is to hack back the external triggers. So this is where we do take on those pings, dings, and rings, right? The things that we blame on technology. This is actually the most practical part of the methodology. We sit down and we change the notifications on our phone, right? This takes no more than 30 minutes, right? It's not a big deal. It's not a big part of the book, but I walk you through exactly how to make your phone indistractable, how to make your computer indistractable. But then we go much deeper, right? How many of us get distracted by stupid meetings that didn't need to be called or emails? Oh my God, how many emails distract us from what we really want to be doing with our time? So I show you step-by-step how to hack back all those external triggers. And then finally, the last step is to prevent distraction with pacts. And this is where we use this, what we call a Ulysses pact, where we use a pre-commitment device as a last line of defense to make sure that if the other three techniques fail, we have that firewall against distraction. So it's really about using these four steps in concert, mastering internal triggers, making time for traction, hacking back external triggers and preventing distraction with packs. This is how anyone can become indistractable. And I guess with traction, in terms of how one defines this, in terms of measuring what's valuable, I suppose that's just very subjective. There's no precise metric on what counts as traction versus distraction. It's a personal judgment. Well, it should be based on your values. So this is where we talk about how to turn your values into time. If you want to see what someone's values really are, don't listen to the words coming out of their mouth. Look at how they spend their time and their money. That's how you will really know what someone's values are. And it's no coincidence that we use the same language to describe time and money, right? We spend money just like we spend time. We make money, just like we make time. We pay attention, just like we pay with dollars and cents. And yet most people are so cheap with their money, right? Coupons, they split checks with their friends. They do all these ridiculous things to save a buck. But when it comes to their time, you just give it away to anyone, right? But if you think about it, we should be cheap with our time and generous with our money because we can always make more money. But I don't care if you're Jeff Bezos or Warren Buffett, you only have 24 hours in a day. So we should be cheap with our time and generous with our money. So that's why when we talk about what's the difference between traction and distraction, it comes down to turning our values into time. And that can only be done by sitting down and asking yourself, how do I want to spend my time in accordance with my values? So that requires creating what's called a time box calendar. Now, what you put in that calendar is up to you based on your values. I'm not going to tell you what your values should be. If your values involve playing video games for 10 hours a day, great, do it. If that's what's valuable to you, if that's the kind of person you want to become, hey, I'm not going to tell you not to. What I want to help you do is to help you do the things you yourself say you want to do. So if you're not reading enough books, if you're not spending enough time with your family, if you're not productive enough at work, the reason why is because you're getting distracted from what you yourself say you're going to do. So that's what I want to help people do is the things that they themselves think are valuable. Your writing and thinking about issues in the work environment resonate with me You know, massively. Meetings are a terrible bugbear. There's this sort of constant question. In fact, I was talking with a colleague yesterday about how does one stop getting continually dragged into meetings? And I know you've talked about this, but I was referencing it just yesterday in conversation. And, you know, particularly A, if one's superior requests it and B, at least my personal tendency is that one just wants to sort of be nice and collegiate. But what one really wants to say is be far more constructive and blunt and precise, but it's easier said than done. Yeah. So I'll give you a wonderful technique for the workplace on how to prevent unnecessary meetings. And the reason we 
have so many unnecessary meetings is that they're so easy to call these days. You know, it used to have to be in the same time and place to call a meeting because we had to be physically present. Well, today it's just so easy to call meetings over Zoom uh, because everybody can just dial in from home and it's become too easy to call those meetings. And so we need to make them more difficult. And so here's two pieces of advice. One, no agenda, no meeting. Okay. This is meeting 101. You have to have a goddamn agenda. (laughs) I don't want to meet to just chit chat. Or if you do, that's a social engagement. Okay. Then it's your choice, whether you want to socially engage with someone over Zoom, your call. But if we're going to have a business meeting, you need to circulate an agenda. The second thing we need to do is to have a briefing document. And this is something I didn't invent. This comes from Amazon, where at Amazon, in order to call a meeting, you have to show that you did the homework. So the number one reason that people call meetings outside of Amazon, the number one reason is because they like to hear themselves think. They want to hear themselves talk about stuff out loud, just shoot the breeze, have some ideas. I want to have my colleagues tell me what they think. It turns out that brainstorming is not the thing you want to do in groups. It turns out brainstorming in groups, studies have found this, is a terrible thing to do. That brainstorming is best done on your own or with one other person. Why? Here's what tends to happen in every group brainstorm. The loudest, the highest paid, and the most male person tends to dominate the conversation. So studies find that the best brainstorming occurs when people spend some time on their own thinking, writing down their thoughts, sending those insights to the stakeholder who's responsible for that project, that person synthesizes their thoughts and then returns a briefing document that everybody reads before the meeting. The purpose of the meeting is for only one thing. And we all need to recognize this. The purpose of a meeting is not for socializing. That's a personal engagement. The purpose of a meeting is not brainstorming. That's something we should do on our own. The purpose of a meeting is to gain consensus. That's it. Gain consensus. So the stakeholder that's calling the meeting needs to say, hey, here's the briefing document. Here's the homework I did. And here's my recommendation. Can we gain consensus for that recommendation. If you don't do that, we're not going to have that meeting. (laughs) And I know people are saying, well, that's great advice. How do I get my boss to do that? How can I tell them that this is what we need to do? Don't tell them. Let me tell them. Get them a copy of my book. It's in Indistractable. There's a chapter on how to build indistractable workplaces. Let me do the convincing. Okay, I do it quite well. I show them how the research backs up that that is the point of a meeting is to gain consensus. You will see you will reduce 80% of the meetings that you have in your day if you just require those two things. No agenda, no meeting and circulate a briefing document. This is such a critical insight, at least for me personally, the, the shift from using the meeting to do the work effectively. And I want to come into a meeting and ask you to come up with a good thought versus I need to do the work if I'm leading the meeting, do that preparation in advance. And actually the meeting is about maybe building on that, but it's predominantly about alignment. I'm definitely going to use that. (laughs) What about the the to-do list? And why is that such a terrible format? Okay, all right, let's kill the sacred cow right now. To be clear, I'm not against writing things down, okay? Getting things out of your head and onto a piece of paper and in an app, wonderful idea. What I am against is running your day on a to-do list. So if you wake up in the morning and you look at your to-do list versus looking at your schedule, you've already lost. Here are a few reasons why to-do lists are such a bad idea. Number one, there's no constraint to a to-do list. You can add more and more and more things to a to-do list and it has no end, right? So here's what happens. When you use a to-do list, I call this the tyranny of the to-do list. You come home from a long day, you've been working real hard, you look at your to-do list and you still haven't finished everything you said you would do. So what does that do to your psyche? When day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, you are looking at this list of commitments that you made to yourself that you did not follow through on. Loser, you are teaching yourself that you do not follow through. And this is why you hear people saying this rubbish that I'm no good at time management. I have a short attention span. No, you don't. You're just using a terrible technique that has taught you that you're bad at this thing that nobody's good at. (laughs) Nobody finishes everything on their to-do list, right? Maybe children and retirees, right? Those are the only people who can afford to not have a schedule. The solution, as opposed to having a to-do list, is to keep a time box schedule. Why? Because a time box schedule forces 
forces you to deal with constraints, the constraints of the same 24 hours in a day that we all have. So by saying, okay, here is what I want to do when I want to do it, it forces you to make certain trade-offs. And most people have never experienced the joy, the bliss of doing what you said you were going to do when you're going to do it, including leisure activities. So the second reason that I hate to do lists is that the irony is that even when we are supposed to be enjoying ourselves, we're spending time with our kids, we're watching a movie, people who keep to-do lists are constantly thinking about the things they didn't finish on their to-do list. So even when we're supposed to be having fun, we're thinking about all the undone items. How stupid is that? As opposed to when you have a time box calendar and you put on your calendar, play with my kid, have dinner with my wife, watch a movie, that's all you're supposed to be doing. That now is traction. Everything else would be a distraction. And that sheer bliss of this is exactly what I said I was going to do with my time. So few people have experienced it. It is an amazing feeling. So those are just a few reasons why to-do lists are such a bad idea. By the way, one more reason, there's no feedback loop with to-do lists. So this is why we have what's called the planning fallacy that studies have found that on average, people take three times longer to complete a task than they originally predict. Why? Because when you have a to-do list, there's no feedback, right? You have an item. Okay, finish a chapter in my book, write that proposal, right? Finish that presentation. How long is it going to take? I don't know. My job is to check the box. (laughs) And until I finish it, I'm not done with it. Whereas when you have a time box schedule and you say, I'm going to work on that presentation for 30 minutes without distraction. Now I start to have a feedback loop to learn how long things take me. Okay. I said I was going to work on that presentation. I need to do 20 slides. I got done five. Okay. Now I can start predicting how long it's going to take me to finish and I can budget that time accordingly. Whereas when all you think about is the output rather than the input, you're never learning. You're never getting better at predicting how long things take you. So instead of measuring yourself on finishing things, you want to measure yourself on your ability to do what you said you were going to do for as long as you said you would without distraction. And that's it. We should have covered the last 10 minutes with me reclining in the therapist's chair. I could just lie back and listen and take notes. And I think my wife would probably like to join this conversation because I think the the bit about devoting more time to family and friend relationships in particular for many of us is such a crucial part of time management. And I'm I'm sort of screaming out to you, help me improve as I'm listening to you and really thinking as you speak, you know, how do I organize my time better? That for me, amongst all the other hacks that one plans, how one tries to organize one's time efficiently, it's the carving up time outside of work, particularly in a work from home environment. It's so true because when we work from home, we don't have those constraints that we used to have. We used to have the guiding the mile markers in our day. Okay, leave the home, get to work, sit in our desk, have lunch. Like we had those time markers at home. Time kind of slips away, (laughs) which makes it even more important that we sit down and plan our time in advance. We'll conclude this discussion shortly. I was thinking as you were speaking that people might assume that since people have been working at home, it's far easier to get distracted. I would posit that it's just different set of distractions. also to get distracted in the office by a whole different set of distractions. In fact, when we did surveys on this, the number one source of distraction before COVID was other people. It wasn't technology. It was other people. It was your coworker, you know, stopping by your desk with a bit of office gossip or your boss asking for that TPS report or whatever the case might be. That was the greatest source of distraction. Today, it's different. We don't have our colleagues distracting us. We have our kids distracting us, right? So there's there's other distractions, but no less vulnerable to distraction. Yes, it's limitless. Now, we really could do, we could do a whole session also on on all these sort of particular life hacks as well. But for now, I just want to ask one last 
question before the quick fire, and that's, you know, what are you working on now? I'm trying to preach the gospel to help the world become indistractable. You know, I think this is so important. I really want to empower people because the only other message out there is this message that you're powerless. There's nothing you can do. The world's distracting. Technology companies want to hijack your brain. And I just think that's such a silly narrative. It's so disempowering. So that's my primary mission right now is to help people become indistractable and to call themselves indistractable. I want that to be a new moniker that people say, yeah, you know what? I don't answer every text message within 30 seconds. That's not what I do because I am indistractable. You know, if you're going to have lunch with me, I want you to put away your device because I'm indistractable. And is that any more unusual than someone who says, oh, I don't eat pork or I'm a vegan or I wear religious garb? Yeah, people do all kinds of things because it's aligned with their values. So I really want to help the world become indistractable and I hope people will join me. And what about merchandise? I mean, this surely could be a next step. You know, I am indistractable t-shirts and hoodies range. <laughs> Funny you should say that. I actually, there are indistractable shirts that other people started making on Amazon. And so I started making some too. And I have nice. these shirts so that I can remind myself that I'm indistractable. So that's available. I think I make like a buck a shirt. That's not going to make anyone rich. <laughs> Brilliant. Shall we do some quick fire to round off? Sure. Fire away. Perfect. What's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? Oof, the kindest thing anyone's ever done for me. You know, I think my wife every day does kind things for me and that she accepts my flaws with so much grace. <laughs> so my wife staying married to me every day is the kindest thing anyone's ever done to me, for me. That's a good answer. What's your most powerful memory? My most powerful memory? Oof. <laughs> that's a that's a good question. The first thing on my mind is when I was obese, I got picked on a lot. And one day I stood up for myself and I punched this bully by the name of Sam. <laughs> in the face and I gave him a bloody nose. That was the first thing that came to mind. <laughs> it was the only time I've ever thrown a punch. <laughs> nice. Tell us something interesting about yourself most people don't know. This is kind of a weird, quirky fact. I run barefoot. I read a book many years ago called Born to Run. By read it myself. Yeah. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, so it's all about the Tahomara Indians who have run barefoot for thousands of years. And I tried this about 10 years ago and I kind of fell in love with it. And I've never run with shoes since. Wow, that's amazing. I, at the time of reading it, which probably must be a decade ago, Ago, bought a pair of very, not quite, well, what would I suppose you'd call sort of barefoot shoes, very thin. Minimalist, yeah. Mini, yeah, I don't know what the term is and, and got into that a bit. I'm afraid I've gone back into very <laughs> supported trainers, but you're inspiring me to maybe try hey, it again. Whatever works for you. I, I used to suffer from a lot of knee pain and shin splints right. and regular shoes weren't working for me. But if regular shoes are working for you, stick with them. We're about the same age and I also get all sorts of different pains up and down the leg. So maybe I should rethink my strategy. Which book, not your own necessarily, I may add, do you gift most regularly? So recently, a book I really loved, and it's a former guest of yours, Rory Sutherland's book, Alchemy. What a great yes. book. He just, great. he's so good. <laughs> yeah, he is a gift of a guest. Wow, uh, he's uh, he's brilliant. Amazing I, I just love that guy. And Alchemy is even better than I expected. And I expected a lot. Yeah, it's great. I fully agree with you. Penultimately, what's your desert island music? Oh, it's Bob Marley, of course. If you're on a desert island, it, <laughs> what could be more Funny. appropriate? <laughs> cool. And then lastly, winding down away from work, tell me a bit more about your hobbies. I love to write. I think writing is a great way to decompress and to kind of spill my thoughts onto the page. So that's something I do for fun and it just so happens to also be my profession. I love to walk. Uh, I live in Singapore and one of the things I love about Singapore is it's a very, very walkable city. So whenever I just want some time, so I don't read articles online. I never do because they're designed to get you down this time-wasting vortex. So I always listen to articles. I use this great app called Pocket that has this text-to-speech software that reads articles to me. So one of my favorite things to do is just a pastime. It also is you know, good to get some exercises to take a walk and listen to articles. 
And with that, Nia, let me thank you so much, not only for your time, but particularly for your huge energy. It just it strikes me that there is more than a lifetime work uh, in understanding and disentangling habit forming, motivation, procrastination, and of course, distraction. But I certainly learned a number of very tangible tips, which I plan to put into practice with no further delay. So Nia, I hope we can talk again another day. But for now, be very well. And thank you so much. My pleasure. Anytime. Thank you. There ends part two of my interview with Nia Ayal. I hope you've learned a lot and, in particular, taken some tangible ideas away with you which you can implement in your everyday lives. For me, it's about meetings. From now on, I'm going to be far more ruthless in accepting meetings and far more diligent in structuring and managing my own ones. Be well, until next time.